0: For this month's Healing 101, we will be marking Women's Mental Health Month by speaking to some incredible female therapists in various different medical fields to give all of you listeners an insight into the wide array of help there is out there. Hopefully these conversations will encourage women to consider the factors that influence their mental health and how they might be able to make some lasting positive changes. You might also learn some valuable health tips along the way. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by licensed marriage and family therapist, Kimberly Quinlan. Kimberly specializes in anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and eating disorders. She is known for her vibrant and mindful approach to mental health issues and created the Self Compassion Workbook for OCD, which is a step by step program to help you understand the emotional experience of OCD and to develop the tools which can help you to manage your disorder. And to build self-confidence in the process. Her mission is that over time her patients will learn to replace self-judgment with kindness and self-compassion so that we can all stop suffering and start thriving. So I'd love to start by asking what made you first decide to start to focus your work on anxiety
1: disorders, body-focused repetitive disorders and eating disorders? I myself had an eating disorder and went through treatment for that. I had several family members who were really struggling with severe, severe anxiety. And so I sort of just felt like, if anything, I wanted to understand what would really good treatment look like. So when I did my master's degree, as soon as I became an intern, I just sort of put my feelers out for anyone who could train me in that area. And I got an internship at a center that specializes in OCD and I loved it immediately. It was such a coincidence that I had no experience with OCD. I hadn't met anyone with OCD and I fell in love with the work right away. And from that, I'd sort of flushed out the training I was getting and sort of very much started to see the combination of how it was similar to my eating disorder. And so that's why I specialize in what I what I specialize.
0: And why do you think our society is so widely uneducated about disorders like OCD?
1: I think with any disorder, there's always going to be like the Hollywood version of that disorder. For unfortunately for OCD, in the 80s and 90s, we did a good job of talking about and showing symptoms like contamination OCD or like jumping over cracks and symmetry OCD, these specific subtypes. But then that's as far as it kind of went. And then it sort of became a thing where people would sort of use it as You know, oh, I'm so OCD about this, and I like things to be perfect. And it kind of started to get misused, the the whole term. And then from there, I think because we had these very limited views of what OCD is and these very specific subtypes, I think it was very hard for people to adjust to the fact that there are so many other presentations of OCD. It is nothing to do with liking your Oreo cookies to be lined up in a row or your things to be neat. It can involve that, but that's actually a very small population of people with OCD. Nobody likes having their intrusive thoughts. Nobody likes doing these compulsive behaviors if you have OCD. And I think that we people have misunderstood the pain and the suffering that goes along with OCD. I,
0: I myself struggle with bad OCD. And I think it is, as you say, it's so misunderstood. And I was at I lunch the other day and someone said oh well OCD is great it's just it's a really positive illness because it means you're a real perfectionist and you like order and you're really motivated and I thought you know what Pandora control yourself don't even enter into this <laughs> discussion because it's already a lost cause but I mean people have no idea of the complexities and the internal rumination that goes on which is often referred by practitioners as magical thinking yeah. and that's what can be so destructive because it's like having a second brain which just doesn't yeah. have an off button I can dream in OCD I wake up and it's the fir- before I've even opened my eyes, I'm thinking an OCD. It is absolutely extraordinary how pervasive it is and how intrusive mm. it is. And as you allude to how detrimental it is for just daily activities and, and living mm. a day-to-day life that's
1: vaguely normal. Right. Everyone I've ever met with OCD has said, I would never wish it on my worst enemy, right? Like it's that painful. And so sort of this idea of like obsessive Christmas disorder and obsessive cat disorder and all of the t-shirts and all the things, I think people just, I think it's hard for people to contemplate that something could be so painful, that thoughts could be so painful when they've never experienced that. So therefore they sort of assume it is a positive thing when they're completely different symptoms. They're completely different presentations. Perfectionism and OCD can go together, but they are definitely not the same.
0: Yeah, and the perfectionism often is a massive hindrance because I think mm. alongside perfectionism comes procrastination. And then for someone with OCD, then the rumination starts and then you start beating yourself up even more and self-compassion becomes even more of an impossibility because you're so caught up in thinking, well I haven't been able to do this, this and this today and I and I can't start this because it's not absolutely perfect and it's not the right, right time and it's not the right place and oh But the self-compassion is a big piece which I'm continually working on, which you do a huge amount of very helpful work on yourself.
1: And so what is the secret in developing Mm -hmm. self-compassion? I think first it's important to recognize that everyone has a critical voice. That critical voice can either, if it's not too aggressive, can propel us towards small change. However, if that's your only way of creating change, it can get stronger and meaner. And then what happens is, let's say if you're someone who has a huge task ahead of them and you're engaging in a lot of self-criticism, a lot of self-punishment, that critical voice to propel you into this thing or to do the project, what ends up happening is you end up stimulating even more stress hormones in your body. And so it's important to recognize that we all engage in it. It's been a part of our history to engage in these behaviors. It's what has kept us from, you know, falling behind and falling out of our tribe. It keeps us in. It does keep us motivated. However, again, if it's something you overuse or you're using it in an aggressive way, you can imagine, and this is the metaphor I often use, is when you had a coach in high school and the coach was very mean and he says, like, come on, you loser, like hurry up, right? Like we immediately have this stress response in our body that shows up, which then creates all of this anxiety. And while, yes, it can promote us to do the behavior, we're doing it from a place of fear and it's feeding that fear. So for people with anxiety or a high level of stress, if they're using that behavior a lot, we're actually, like I always say, it's like giving yourself an injection of stress hormones, What we want to do from that perspective is, the first thing I always tell people is, let's not beat ourselves up for the fact that we've beat ourselves up, because that's just the same thing. So first, let's just sort of understand and be forgiving for the fact that we have all engaged in these behaviors before. Self-compassion is an alternative way to motivate The definition of self-compassion is ultimately to tend to your suffering kindly, right? It's this general wish to be happy. It's that basic training of treating yourself like you would treat a loved one if they were going through what you were going through. The cool thing about self-compassion is we know from research, extensive amounts of research, that self-criticism increases procrastination, it decreases performance, it decreases motivation, it increases anxiety and depression, it reduces quality of life. And the practice of self-compassion increases people's motivation. It significantly decreases procrastination and it can bring a sense of worthiness and identity and um, self esteem that can propel people towards success, right? So we know now the research is that it is a better alternative to self criticism when we're using it to motivate. And I mean, it's so
0: hard to tell someone who's in the depths of a depression or struggling with an anxiety-related disorder such as OCD to try and ignite some semblance of self-compassion because you do you hate yourself so much because you can see that you're stuck in a rut what do you say to someone who is in the grips of a, a really severe illness
1: I think first it's important to understand what self-compassion is not, right? I think that we have come a long way in our, similar to OCD, we've come a long way, but we, there are some misunderstandings about self-compassion as well. And I think one of those is people equate self-compassion to self-love and that is too far of a jump for someone who has depression or has anxiety or has OCD or, you know, has really relied on self-criticism as a tool in their life. And I really don't think of compassion as self-love or sort of this idea. I always sort of make a joke about like, it's not unicorns and rainbows. It's not bubble baths and candles. It can be, but often an act of self-compassion could be as simple as saying to yourself, it makes complete sense that you feel this way. But it could also be a simple act of brushing your teeth. Um, it could be an act of rest. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture. What I say to people who hate this idea, there are a lot of people who want it, but it's hard. There are other people who say, I hate this idea. I don't that sounds like puke, like baff, don't want to do it. And I would often say, if that's really hard for you, start with just self-respect right? Just start with treating yourself with common humanity, with basic stuff. For anyone who really struggles, if they're in therapy and they have a compassion-informed therapist, what you can start to do is look at some of the roadblocks to self-compassion, and that can start to break apart these beliefs we have about self-compassion and beliefs about ourselves, and that sometimes can be helpful too. Another thing as well as self-respect is is self-acceptance. Mm-hmm.
0: Someone said to me the other day would I want to date the person I am? And if I <laughs> if I don't, then I'm I'm doing something wrong and I've got to start making a few changes to make myself that person. And I actually when I heard it I thought oh god, but actually it's true. Would I want to be with the person I am currently and the way that I'm behaving and the way that I'm treating myself? Because ultimately the way we treat ourselves is a reflection of how we feel about ourselves and therefore mm. it often gives off signals to other people as to how we feel we deserve to be
1: treated. So much of self-compassion is that first step that we understand. If we're using the Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer model of, of self-compassion, the first Step or the first skill of compassion or the component of compassion is mindfulness, which is being aware of the way things are and having an insight about things. And often, when we're approaching the idea of being compassionate, it's first just catching and being aware. You don't even have to make the first stages, you don't even have to make changes. It's just like you're saying, like asking those questions and being aware of oh, I just called myself a really horrible name or, oh, I just pushed myself into exhaustion when I really needed to rest or I just did a compulsion when that compulsion's only gonna make this obsession stronger, right? It's not beating ourselves up. It's not saying you did the wrong thing. It's just catching these actions or behaviors that we have, whether they're physical or mental And being aware that that's what's going on with non-judgment first. And that's the key, right, is the non-judgment piece.
0: So what do you see as being the most common roadblocks to developing a sense of self-compassion?
1: Well, there are uh, several, and it depends on the presentation of the persons. But the most common ones, I would say, that are universal for most humans are that the fear that self-compassion is going to make them lazy or unmotivated. And that's because they've used self-criticism as their motivator. And so it makes complete sense that if you stop doing that, how would you possibly motivate yourself? And so this is where I would encourage people again to, I call it the kind coach, right? Is to start a practice of being your own kind coach. So I used the example before of the coach who sort of is like, get up your lazy thing and get going, you you know, you lose kind of thing. That kind of coach uses criticism to motivate, right? It uses their challenges to motivate, it uses shame to motivate them. A kind coach is somebody where they know your weaknesses, but they don't use their weaknesses against you. They know your strengths and they highlight your strengths to help motivate you and they're encouraging and cheering, they cheerlead you to do the hard thing and we can develop that just like we can develop learning a new language or learning how to play the piano or doing push-ups. We can strengthen that with time and that's something I will often have my clients practice is ask them questions like, what would your critical coach tell you right now? Say so you have to go to a, an event you really don't want to go to and you're scared to and it triggers you in many ways. Okay, what would your critical coach say? They'd say, just get there, you loser. This shouldn't be hard. This should be easy. Everyone else can do it. How does that feel? That doesn't feel very good. <laughs> okay, what would your kind coach say? They might say, just go for half an hour and see what you can do. And so I think that the myth that you'll be lazy is is always the biggest one. Another really big one is that I will be weak. It's a weakness that self-compassion is sort of this vulnerable woo-woo silliness. I always just bring out the science when people say that. And I'm like, let me tell you 12 science reviews that show all the benefits of how it actually makes you stronger, more resilient, more focused, less procrastination. You know, like it, it, increases kids who have self-compassion practice in middle school tend to perform better in testing. Like adults and elderly who use self-compassion tend to repair from surgeries faster. Not that it's going to change their medical, but it helps them to keep up with their physical therapy and so forth. So we have a lot of research to sort of break that. For people with OCD or anxiety or depression, one of the biggest ones is that they feel that they don't deserve it because of their mental illness. And that's shame. That's just the stigma of, and shame. And so that was another huge one, which I think people have to work through. Hurt to Healing has partnered with
0: Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. I'd love to go on to talking about exposure response Mm -hmm. work because that's something that is also a big feature in your book. So will you just tell our listeners
1: what ERP is? So ERP is an acronym for exposure and response prevention. So exposure and response prevention is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Think of cognitive behavioral therapy as a big umbrella that is used to treat many, many disorders. It's one of the most science-based treatments that you can get for depression, anxiety, eating disorders, psychosis. It's a very, very well-fleshed-out research treatment. And under that umbrella of CBT is ERP. And ultimately what that is, is it's exposed. So the E is for exposure, which is exposing someone to their fear or their thing that they're uncomfortable with. And the response prevention, the RP, is to once you've engaged in exposure, then the RP is practicing not engaging in any safety behaviors to reduce or remove the discomfort that shows up once you've faced that trigger. So let's sort of say a really basic example is let's say you're afraid of dogs. You have a dog phobia. The exposure would be to first look at a photo of a dog. We wouldn't go straight to the dog park because you mightn't be ready for that yet and that wouldn't be the kind thing to do is we would look at a dog and we would notice that our brain sends out a lot of anxiety chemicals and hormones and we're noticing tightness in our chest and sick in our tummy or whatever it may be. So we would that would be the exposure. The response prevention may be not engaging in avoidant behaviors, right? Not running away. It might be not ruminating about what would happen if a dog did show up or what would happen if one day you do have to see a dog. It would also involve not engaging in reassurance-seeking compulsions, like not going to a loved one saying, you know, are you promised me no dogs would come around, you know, maybe Googling like, will dogs harm me or which dogs will harm me and so forth. And then the last one is ultimately not punishing yourself for having the discomfort that you're having. So that's ERP, a very short explanation. So
0: it might seem like a, a, an ironic juxtaposition, but how do you combine
1: self-compassion with ERP? So one thing that the reason that I wrote the self-compassion workbook for OCD is because I found some clients were doing really well with exposure, but they were beating themselves up every step of the way, right? They were like, just do it. Go and do the exposure. You have to like in that really kind of critical way. So they were motivating themselves to do the exposure with criticism. And then when they had the discomfort, they were engaging in criticism, which as we shared at the very beginning actually increases the person's stress response and so they were doubling up on their anxiety in addition there was this just overall feeling of like erp sucks like why would i do this if all i'm i know what i'm going to do is i'm going to beat myself up before i'm going to beat myself up during and i'm going to beat myself after why would i want to do this exposures are already hard enough this is a silly metaphor but the way i conceptualize it is think of compassion and ERP, like a sandwich. So the meat and cheese of the sandwich, the real gold, you know, science-based treatment is exposure and response prevention. It's so helpful. It's got great research to back that it's a very helpful treatment for OCD. But what we want to do is we want to sort of sandwich it between practices of compassion. So the bread is the self-compassion so that you're basically reducing that compulsive self-punishment. And you're creating an environment where facing your fears isn't just completely hyper-arousing you. It's meaning arousing in terms of like you're just completely freaked out. You're completely overwhelmed. It's just like a horrible experience. So the compassion, think of it, like we first gently motivate ourselves to do the exposure with that kind coach, not the critical coach. We're coaching ourselves ourselves through the anxiety, like a coach actually would. Like, you know, just like I would if I was with a client, like, it's okay. Just a few more minutes. Let's keep going. Can you do a little bit more? Keep going. Like that's a kind way to coach yourself through something. It's not saying, remember that this is not saying like bad things won't happen because that's just a form of reassurance, right? We're not doing that. And then at the end, the compassion piece is celebrating the fact that you just did a freaking hard thing. Because often people with an anxiety disorder, once they do the hard thing, they do the exposure, they go, whatever, everyone else could do it. It shouldn't even have been that hard. Mm. Instead of going, holy smokes, look what I just did. I did a holy moly hard thing. And so I think that with each step of the way, we can actually improve our relationship with being uncomfortable and practicing being uncomfortable.
0: Uh, You're also a big advocate of mindfulness um, in managing anxiety. So how crucial can mindfulness
1: be in someone's recovery from OCD? Yeah, so important. In fact, as important as compassion. I think of mindfulness as a part of compassion. As I said, it's sort of that first piece. But in general, for those folks who don't know about mindfulness, mindfulness is being present in the here and now, non-judgmentally and without resistance. And so there you have three parts that will superpower. It's a superpower. It will boost your treatment because often when we're anxious or depressed, we're not here We're actually our thinking is focused on the future, which hasn't happened yet, or the past, which has come and gone. And so mindfulness gives us an opportunity when our brain is racing to Be here and be very much engaged with what's happening right now. So an example I often do with my patients is they're like, let's say they're panicking 10 out of 10, so anxious, feel like they have to do the compulsion, really distressed, maybe even really dysregulated. And I might encourage them to slow it down and go, okay, while you're in this discomfort, what do you see? What shapes do you see? What colors do you see? What do you smell? And they'll often go, Yeah, I know that, but I really want to focus on the future. And how can I solve the future? And we'll say, Yeah, come on back. We will get there, but let's come on back to like, what are you touching? Like, what does the keyboard feel like as you touch it? Or what does the material of your pants feel like? And that is again like strengthening a muscle of being able to be here now instead of trying to solve the future or solve the past. So that's one piece. The other really important piece, as I said, with mindfulness is non-judgment. And so much of our suffering comes from non-judgment. And I'm talking about just general suffering, not even OCD or a mental illness. We have research to show that people who have chronic pain disorders let's say 50 people were given strong, strong painkillers and another 50 people were given mindfulness practice and they were taught to have pain but not resist their pain and not judge it as bad or wrong or going to last forever. And we actually know that the group that practiced mindfulness after the five weeks actually reported lower rates of pain than those in the pain medication group. And we've found that by being mindful and not resisting and trying to consistently push your discomfort away, we actually can get a little bit of relief from that discomfort. Does mindfulness work effectively alongside ERP? I would go as far as to say it's crucial for ERP because so much of the work we do with ERP is reducing mental compulsions. A lot of people miss that component. And mindfulness is a powerful way to stay out of rumination and to stay here and now. It might be as simple as noticing as you're washing the dishes. The feeling of the warm water against your skin or the suds against your skin or what does this plate feel like versus what does this knife feel like? And so it's very much important to even help with the exposure so that you're not engaging in those compulsions during and after.
0: Kimberly, I'd really love just to finally ask you about your CBT school and why were you inspired to create it and what does it do and can anyone join it?
1: So I have a private practice where I treat OCD. When I first started my private practice, I was getting calls from, uh, because I've had a podcast and people were starting to learn about ERP. People were calling from all over the country and all over the world. And I'm legally not allowed to treat people outside of the state of California or whatever state that I'm licensed in. So it's kind of turning people away to nothing. Like there are states, there were states in America and there are countries where there is literally not one OCD specialist. And that was getting pretty painful to send them to basically nobody. So what I did was I sat down and recorded courses, which basically show people in video recordings the steps that I take with their clients so they can practice it on their own. You know, if it's OCD, it's basically me training them like these are the steps. Here is how we would put together your OCD hierarchy. Here are the tools you will need. Here is how you need to understand before you go there. And then people can purchase those courses. They're really for people who don't have access to ERP or they're wanting to really feel like they understand the process and before they go and start doing it on their own. So we have courses on cbtschool.com for OCD, panic disorder, anxiety, depression. We have one on hair pulling and skin picking. We have tons of free resources there as well. And hopefully to help people get those science-based tools so they can get started for themselves.
0: So wonderful. And thank you for creating such an incredible hub. And as you say, for people who just wouldn't otherwise have access to the help Mm -hmm. that you provide, and you're incredibly active on social media. So
1: where can people find you there? So you can find me at Your Anxiety Toolkit on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook, under CBT School on Facebook. And we have a weekly podcast called Your Anxiety Toolkit that comes out every Friday which is brilliant. Kimberly, I could talk to you for hours, but I don't want to
0: take up any more of your precious time. And it's just been absolutely fascinating talking to
1: you. And thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And it, it really is cool. I'm, I'm, you must be so proud of the work that you're doing.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.